I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 23. I just want to read for you verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because in it we find 20 verses devoted to the topic of death. The account of Sarah's death and then the account of how Abraham acquired a burial plot for her. And as you read through Scripture, you'll find that this is, best of my recollection going through this, the longest text that deals with the topic of death and burial in all of Scripture. It's a a fascinating passage. Simple facts that we know about death as Christians are something like this. One day we will all die. Apart from the coming of Jesus... Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. Another thing we know is this. Death is the end of life, but not the end of our personal existence. Paul talked about death in this way. He said, I I would rather depart and be with Christ. Luke chapter 16 talks about the rich man and Lazarus going into an eternal destiny. So it is the end of this life. But we are somewhere forever in a place of judgment or in a place of glory with God. And then we know this, the real differences among people are clearest at the moment of death. You know people in the way that you know them in life, but you really learn about people when they face death. And the the clearest differences and distinctions between believers and unbelievers is found at the door of death. It's where you really find out what your faith is made of, what your life is about. Death is, as it were, the final test about the validity, about the importance, about the substance of your life. In verse 2, this text tells us that Abraham came to weep and mourn over Sarah. And typically in the ancient world, they would set up a tent, the body would be there for a day, and people would come by and pay their respects. In this text, Abraham comes into that tent to mourn and to weep over Sarah. Fascinatingly, these are the first tears recorded in Scripture. It's the only time that we find that Abraham cries. Is it appropriate that believers who are people of such hope would experience grief Sorrow, sadness, mourning. Okay, I think the answer to that question is found in John chapter 11, where Jesus comes to the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and the Bible tells us in just simple terms, when he got there, Jesus wept. The watching Jews said this, they said, see how he loved him. So there is this, this grief that is expressed in the face of hope. Jesus knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet the sorrow that he sees Mary and Martha going through crushes his heart. And so grief and sadness are an appropriate 
response. Abraham comes into this tent to mourn and to weep, to pay respects, to demonstrate how much he loved this woman. The tears are a tribute to the memory of his wife. They are an expression of the affection and partnership that they had experienced. Ray Stedman says it this way. He says, the well of grief is fed by springs of memory. And you have to ask yourself in this story, because we've gone over it for weeks now, looking at the ups and downs, the undulations in the spiritual topography of their life. And you see, man, this has not been an easy marriage. This hasn't been an easy life. So what runs through the mind of Abraham as he takes time to remember and in that remembering to honor his wife? And I think we could say there's the good and there's the bad. There's the pleasant and there's the very unpleasant memories that Abraham has. The memories of when they met her exceptional beauty that struck him and that caused problems for him down the road in his life. Their adventure in Genesis chapter 12, following the call of God to go to a place that they did not see any advertisements for. And they went together in obedience and faith in the call of God. Shared tears for the barrenness that Sarah wrestled with for 25 years in the land of promise, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. The miracle of her son being born and the name laughter. They've been in the land for 63 years approximately. Living together, but we also know that there are mixes in his mind of serious regrets. Embarrassing failures when he lied about her status and risked her purity to save his own life. This is the way it is as we look back in our lives. We see the good, we see the bad. He remembers arguing over, over Hagar. He remembers the debate about his son Ishmael and having to send him off because of the tension, hard times. Now death has taken his bride and he is alone in the land of promise. Torn from his hands, not from his heart, one writer said. He loved this woman, and now he comes in to pay respects on their last day. And folks, here's what's fascinating to me. We live in a culture that places heavy emphasis on what day in relationship to marriage. What's the most important day? The wedding day. Right? Our culture, we amplify that. We pour all kinds of money into it. Get everything perfect. Look better than you ever will for the rest of your life. For that day. Right? It's, it's weird. Think about it. Okay? What day should we be preparing for? We should be preparing for the last day of our life. And our culture, we, we get it backwards. We're, we're so focused on the emotion and on the dream and on the expectations. We should be focused on reality. Reality is that life is hard. That as all of us look back in our lives, and particularly in our marriages, we're going to see good times and bad times. I think the encouragement from God's Word would be something like this. Take time to prepare for the last day. How do you prepare for the last day of your life? It's all about how you live your life. Single people. It's about how you're living today because the person you are today is the person that your mate will marry someday. Take time to focus on that. Grow in your preparation, grow together. They've come to the end of their life together. And what to me is amazing, and I mentioned this in our Sunday school class this morning, if you were going to find a woman and say, okay, this woman is 
exemplary of what a Christian woman should be. I, I'm fairly certain that after we have taught through the life of Abraham and Sarah, that most of you would not pick Sarah as an example of a godly woman. You know what? God does. As an evidence of His grace, as an evidence of progress in her life and her walk with Abraham, in spite of all of the bad times and the struggles, there was progress in her life. So the First Peter 3, I think it's about verse 5, it talks about Sarah and holds her up as an example of a woman who honored and reverenced her husband. That to me is a fascinating thought, but it is also a deep encouragement of hope to all of us. If we're willing to work at things in our lives and in our marriages and in our preparation for marriage, God will bless. And the ending day of our life together can be as beautiful and powerful in terms of memories as is the beginning day. If you're married, seize the opportunity that God has given to you today. Your legacy matters. You will be at that time remembered for good or bad. Leave a legacy that will, will leave a, a strong imprint on your culture. How you end matters more than how you begin in your life. Focus of this text, as I mentioned, is death. And I just I want to just, in, in a sense, give you that aside on, on marriage because it's part of the picture. This man is losing his wife. Death is bringing into focus for Abraham thoughts about eternity, thoughts about the promises that God has given to him. Death will make you think more clearly. It will remove distractions. I don't know if you ever noticed this in your own life. It's so easy for us to get a clouded view of things. And then you stand graveside and what happens? What really matters is what comes into focus. It becomes clear. And for Abraham, that's what's going to happen as you move through this text. He's going to be so affected by this loss, by this death. Clarity, perspective. And you're going to watch how a believer responds to circumstances of loss. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2. And this is an amazing statement. It says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Okay, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of a, with a party. Amazing statement, isn't it? Why is it better? Here's what the writer says. Death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take it to heart. One day this life's going to end. Are you living to prepare for eternity? Are you living to leave a lasting legacy that will make a difference in the lives of those that know you? And you can ask this question. How does a person of faith respond to a season of grief in their life? And this is what I want us to do. I want us to look through Abraham's life. Watch how he responds. This was something that hit him hard. He had spent years with this woman. Loved her. Was attracted to her. Struggled with her. Wrestled with her. Grief and deep love are evident. Grief is an appropriate response to death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, In the face of death, we sorrow but not like those without hope. So the first thought that, in a sense, emerges out of this text is something like this. Believers face seasons of difficulty in death. It's part of life in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time to weep 
and there's a time to rejoice. Okay, both of them are part of the experience, and we need to live in preparation for them. When death came, what did Abraham do? Abraham experienced a season of grief, but he did it with hope. Psalm 23, David captures this thought, doesn't he? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. He had lost his best friend, but he was not alone. And so he begins to get ready to get up from that bedside mourning and grieving process to take on the rest of his life. We all will face seasons of difficulty while waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the tension we live with. Verse 4, or verse 3, I'm sorry, is a fascinating statement to me. It says, after weeping and mourning, then Abraham rose, some of your translations are going to say, he stood from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. Okay, so there, there's a time for this grieving and mourning process. Abraham works through that. It is fully appropriate. But at the end of that grief, what does he do? He gets up to face the task that is at hand, the task that is now brought on by the decease of his dear wife. They came to this land of promise, expecting to receive the seed and the blessings of God. That's the promise of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Where, what is their status at this point? Okay, what is the status of Abraham in the land? Verse 4 tells us this. He says, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property, which means what? Abraham at this point has no permanent possession in the land of promise. He's there. He's an occupier, but he's not a possessor of the land. So there's no permanent piece of land. There's no grandchildren for nation building, which is exactly what God told him he had sent him there to do, that he would become a great nation numerous times, that your children, your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. That's the promise to Abraham. He doesn't have that yet. Isaac is 37 years old and still single. There's no offspring. That's the status of things when Sarah dies. Another thing you notice is that he has to negotiate a burial place for his wife. Okay, so What's the lessons that emerge out of this verse? Grief and death often precede the fulfillment of God's promises. Okay? Sorrow, struggling, death, grief will often be our experience prior to the fullness or the full realization of the promises of God. Because walking with God requires faith in His promises. Hebrews 11 and verse 9 describes how Abraham is living in the promised land. It says, by faith he lived like a stranger in a foreign land in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Okay, they were experiencing loss prior to the fulfillment of the promises. We will experience the same thing. The thing that we need to remember when those losses occur through death, through suffering, through struggle, through pain. The lesson we also need to learn emerges in verse 3. Trouble, even death, does not nullify the promises of God. You see, when we get hit with difficult circumstances, what do we tend to think? We tend to think it's not worth it. We tend to think that the presence of trouble in our lives in some way is nullifying the care, the love, and promises of God. 
We'll see, Abraham's facing a dramatic loss here, the death of his dear wife. But in verse 3, he, one writer said it this way. He said, he's, he's there mourning and grieving. They didn't have the process of bombing. He has business to deal with. So one writer says it this way. He stood up, squared his shoulders, and faced the task head on. Okay? With what thought in mind? That death and struggle were not nullifying or making void the promises that God had made to him. So he rises and begins to work out the promises of God in his life. Here's how we know that. Okay? In the ancient world, and even sometimes in, in the case where we live today, when someone dies in a foreign land, it is very common for people to transport the body back to the ancestral homeland. Okay, that was very normal for that to occur. Okay, Abraham has that option. He can take her back to Ur of the Chaldees, to where they came from, back to her homeland. But what is Abraham mindful of? Abraham is mindful of the fact in Genesis chapter 12 that God called him to go to the land of promise and to remain there. Okay, so all of a sudden now, the promises aren't fulfilled, but death is already occurring. What is Abraham's response? He recognizes that her death does not void or nullify the promises that God has given to him. So what does he do? After his grief is past, he acts in light of the promises. Hebrews 11.15 makes this fascinating observation. It says, if they, Abraham and his offspring, were thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return to it. And this is fascinating to me. If at the point of Sarah's death, Abraham was always thinking with regret about what he gave up, what would happen? There would be an open door or a temptation for him to go back there and claim what was rightfully his. But what did he remember? God called me out of the era of the Chaldees to live in the land of Canaan. While living in the land of Canaan, waiting for the promises to be fulfilled, death strikes. And what does Abraham do? Abraham takes that opportunity to, if you will, acquire a portion of the promised land in faith that this is where he and his family for generations would live. The death of Sarah did not nullify or negate the promises of God. He didn't think about it. Going back to, the, to, to, to his, uh, his uh, ancestral land never entered his mind. It was put out. Why? God had called him to the land of Palestine for a purpose that would last for years, even, I believe, at some level, to the day in which we live. Death did not destroy the promises of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, as we sung so beautifully this morning, Paul asked this question. He says, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? And what do we find? What we find is that through Jesus Christ, we have victory over these difficult circumstances, that the promises that God has given to us are not nullified by death. In fact, they are realized through and in death for believers. So death does not destroy our hope. Death brings us to our hope because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lesson that emerges here. For those that have lost loved ones, especially for widowers and widows, okay? Abraham's life does not end at the death of his wife. He doesn't waste this grief. 
He experiences it. He endures it. And then he gets up to do what? To continue on securing the promises of God and living in light of the promises of God. God had left him there for a purpose. And I believe that as long as you are here, God has a purpose for your life that is not negated by the death of your loved ones. Verse 4, Abraham then moves into a negotiating process. He says, I am an alien and stranger among you. I have no place to bury my dead. So what does he say? Sell me a piece of land so that I can bury my loved one here. Why is Abraham doing this? Because this is the place that God has called them to live. Okay? So the last thought that I just want want to go through this just a little more uh, fully. Believers live and act by faith in light of God's promises. So Abraham is in a season of grief. That grief is a good thing. Death has come prior to the fulfillment of the promises, but that death did not nullify the promises. In light of that fact, what does a believer do? A believer lives and guides their life and acts in light of the promises that are still to come. And this is exactly what Abraham does in this pursuit of acquiring a piece of land. Sell me some property. And I think really, if you said to me, Tim, what is the the overriding, overarching theme of this text? At one level, it's death. But the overarching theme of this text is the acquisition of a piece of the promised land as an act of faith. That's what this text is about. How does a believer respond to grief? They continue to move forward with the plan of God. In Abraham's case, that faith would be expressed through acquiring a portion of the land of promise. So, verse 5. It says, the Hittites, after Abraham says, sell me a piece of land so that I can bury my wife, the Hittites replied to Abraham, sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Okay, that's fascinating. So this negotiating process starts. Abraham says, I want to buy a piece of land. Okay, their response is, we, you have our complete respect. And folks, here, this isn't a fascinating statement to me. Abraham, as a worshiper of Jehovah and in, in a country that is full of idols and paganism, has stood out as a mighty prince. They actually address him with the word master or Lord two times in this text. Okay, and that's fascinating to me. A man who is driven by the promises of God, who lives by faith in the promises of God and allows that faith to affect his lifestyle, attracts the attention of a watching world. And that's what Abraham is doing in this text. He has lived in such a way that he has captured the attention of the watching world. Verse 7 then is fascinating. Abraham rose up, bowed down before the people of the land. And then he goes into, if if you want to use the word haggling here, negotiating, okay, that's what they're doing. And if you've ever been uh, in the land of Israel and made a purchase, you know what it's like, okay? Everything is haggled over. Nothing has a price on it. So you're constantly negotiating to get the best deal that you can get. In this case, Abraham in the Oriental custom is negotiating for a piece of land in Palestine. Okay, He could have taken her back to her ancestral lands. He does not do that. He believes the promise of God and acts in light of God's promises. So verse 7 through 8, Abraham says, I want to buy a portion of the land. End of verse 9. 
He says about this man named Ephron who owns a place called Machpelah. He says, ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial among you. Now, what's their response? Their response is, just take it. Abraham, whichever one of our burial plots you want, just take it. Why does Abraham refuse that offer? Why won't he take it for free? I mean, in one sense, it's a reflection back to the king of Sodom. When so- the king of Sodom said, okay, you keep all this stuff, but just give me my men back. And what does Abraham say? I don't want anyone to ever be able to say, the king of Sodom made me rich. Okay, and it's likely that, that that's part of what's going on here. But what is Abraham looking for? Okay, why won't he receive the land as a loan or as a lease or as a gift? Why won't he do that? Okay, and I think it's because of the overarching theme of the text, which is there are promises that God has given to Abraham that relate to permanence in the land of Canaan. Okay, and Abraham is not distracted from the theme of permanence by his present suffering. Okay, he's got his eye on the goal. He has squared his shoulders. He is thinking about the promises of God, how they relate to the circumstance of grief and death, and he is determined in his heart that it won't be given to him as a gift. He won't take it as a loan. He will not lease the land. He wants a permanent place in the land of Palestine. After how many years? 63 years. How's he living there? Verse 4 tells me he's living as an alien in tents. He's a stranger. He's, in a sense, passing through, looking for a greater home. It's offered him for free. He seeks, verse 4, 9, 18, and 20, use a fascinating word. It says he was looking for a, New Living Translation captures it, a permanent burial place. Okay, the end of verse 9 where it says, sell it to me for the full price as a burial site, the word that literally can be translated as a permanent burial site. Okay, three times that becomes the, the if you will, the, the, the accurate interpretation of this statement. A burial site, meaning I want a permanent place in this land. Why? Because Abraham was believing the promises of God. God is giving me this place. This is where my family will live. This is where my wife will be buried. Then he asked the question, why? Why does he seek a permanent place? At one level, it could simply be this, this desire to honor his dear wife. And, and so what does he say? He says, I don't care how much you're charging me. I just want a place where she can be honored. One possibility. Second idea, I think, is simple obedience. So that he could remain in the land that God had called him to. That's why he's buying a place there. And the implication is that later Abraham would be buried there and Isaac and Jacob and eventually we would see that Jacob is brought back from the land of Egypt and buried in the same place. When Joseph dies in the land of Egypt some 500 years later, what does he say? Take my bones back. Where? To the place that God told us we would be. So what's the overarching theme? The people of God in the midst of grief are driven by the future promises of God. They dictate and determine their behavior. So he doesn't allow grief to overcome. No, he's a man of faith. When you get to the end of the text, you find that they've haggled back and forth and they finally agree to a price. Many commentators kind of, uh, if you will, speculate that Ephron is like, you want to pay the full price? 400 shekels. Okay, here's a fascinating thing. Later when Dave, David, King David buys Mount Moriah, you know how much he pays for the whole temple complex area? 50 shekels of silver. Okay? 
How much is Abraham paying for this site? He's not haggling here. Okay, what he's negotiating is, I must purchase it. That's the conviction. He pays 400 shekels of silver for a grave site. When David paid 50 shekels for the entire Mount Moriah. Why does Abraham do this? Okay, Abraham didn't matter how much it cost him. What he wanted, what he was insisting upon, was a piece of the promised land. At great personal cost, Abraham, personal cost, Abraham is, ex, is expressing faith by making a purchase so that this land is a permanent possession. It would have his wife buried in it. It would stake a claim in the promise of God. So in the midst of his grief, what is, what is it that's motivating Abraham's behavior, his decision making? I want a permanent footprint in the place that God has promised to me. And it is, to me, it is, it's just so, so beautiful. When you get to verse 17, it says, So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, which is the original place that Abraham and his wife had come to some 63 years earlier, both the field and the cave in it, all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property, permanent property, where? In the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the city gate. So where are they? They're at what would be the commonly in our idea, the, the court room. Okay, and in the sight of all of these witnesses, what is Abraham doing? Abraham is publicly seeing the, the shekels are weighed out in the custom of the day, and Abraham acquires this piece of property and a title deed to it. Why? Because he was a man who was taking a step of faith. Warren Wiersbe makes this observation. He says, when Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah for a tomb, he was making a statement of faith. He did not take Sarah back to the ancestral homeland in Ur, but buried her in the land that God had given him and his descendants. He did not ignore the body, but gave it a proper burial in view of the promise of resurrection. What is Abraham doing when he buys this portion of land? He's doing what Hebrews 11 verse 9 would later talk about. By faith, he lived like a stranger in a foreign land in tents. And in this living there, what is he doing? He's seeking a permanent location in response to what? His trust and faith in the clear and wonderful promises of God. Abraham's legacy to me in light of this is actually very, very beautiful. Because later we'll find that Isaac is buried in this grave. Abraham's buried in this grave. Jacob, his grandson, is buried in this grave. Joseph, buried in this grave. Why? Because Abraham, in his grief, had an eye of faith. He fixed it on the promises of God. That focus altered his behavior and allowed him to sacrifice freely to purchase a place where the will of God could be done in his life. Now. Focus on buying a grave or a tomb. Okay? When you think about tombs in Scripture, there's one other tomb that should come to mind. The tomb of Jesus Christ. Okay? What did Jesus do? Jesus borrowed a tomb. Why did Jesus borrow a tomb? I love the way that one, 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 one commentator said it this way. Because he would not be needing it very long. He borrowed a tomb. Because he would not be needing it very long. And folks, it is the fact that Jesus Christ, you know, Sarah's buried in the tomb. People could go there. That, that burial place is still 
existent. You can still go back there. It's now a Muslim shrine built over top of it. But the burial place of Abraham and Sarah and on and on, it's all still there. And people go there and remember their life and, and in a sense may express some degree of grief or sorrow over their loss. That's why Abraham bought it. So that she would be remembered and honored. Folks, here's a fascinating thought. We don't, as Christians, go to the burial place of Christ. Why? He's not there. The emphasis in the Christian faith is that Jesus died, rose, conquered the grave. And we should what? Therefore, place faith in Him as Abraham placed faith in the promise of God. We place faith in the greater promise of God. That's what Jesus said to His disciples in John chapter 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Why, Jesus? I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, Abraham had a place from God, but it was, it was a temporary place, but he was also looking forward to a greater place. Jesus says to the disciples, in the midst of this life where you will experience trouble and suffering and even death, don't let your heart be shaken to the core. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And what does he say? In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I'm going to build rooms for you, a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now see, as Christians, we're, we're going to face circumstances of difficulty. We're going to face circumstances. Death is going to happen prior to the coming of Christ. A believer clings to the promises of God, is not shaken. We grieve, yes, but Paul says, we sorrow, but not like those without hope. Meaning, there is an end to our grief. Finally, and certainly like Abraham does in verse 3, we have to stand up, square our shoulders to life, and live for the glory of God in light of the promises. And those promises give us joy. They give us freedom. They give us power. They give us hope. They bring liberation. Folks, understand this. The fact that Jesus Christ overcame the grave and defeated death means that He can defeat sin in your life. He rose and conquered the grave. Abraham purchased a permanent place. Jesus borrowed a tomb because He would conquer death and give us the hope of a future promised land. And in Abraham's exercise of buying this permanent place. The Bible tells us this. It says, Abraham purchased that permanent place, but he still continued to live like an alien and stranger. Why? Because he was looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is who? God. And one writer makes this observation. He said, the gleaming light of that future city Shown to Abraham through all of the distress, through all of the sorrow, through all of the grief. What did he see? He saw the gleaming lights of the future city. And that's why he could live appropriately before God in the midst of this sorrow and death. He had his eyes fixed on the prize. He saw the light gleaming through those slivers of light that were hope of a brighter day coming. A city fascinatingly in which there will be no tears. In Genesis 23, I see the first tears recorded in the Bible from a man of faith. And when I come to Revelation chapter 21, what do I find? I find the fact that in this city, this gleaming city, there are no tears. Why? The former things are passed away. Everything is becoming new. Sin is defeated and destroyed. And we rise in hope. That hope 
That and faith in that hope is what made Abraham a different man. And it is that hope that should change every believer. We sorrow, but not as those without hope. The crushing sorrows of death could not destroy his view of the light that streams from the city that is to come. And I would give you this challenge this morning. This is a text that deals with death. All of us, as James 4 says, are living lives that are but a vapor. They appear for a little time, and then what happens? They vanish away. Okay? It's the end of our, exist, our life here, but it is not the end of our existence. Live for that future home. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11, it says, Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because He has prepared a city for them. For who? For people of faith who trust in the incredible promises of God that alter their very life, that alter their very decisions, that change how they relate to their marriage, that change how they relate to death and sorrow and grief in their lives. Do you have this hope? Are you prepared for your last day? What's the legacy that you will leave? Will you leave a legacy? This man, this woman, this young person lived for the glory of God. They saw the gleaming light of the city to come and it affected their existence here. They were people of hope. They were people of faith for whom sorrow could not crush or destroy their hope. Abraham ends his story with the deed to the future promise of God. Every believer ends their story with the title deed to the hope that is to come. We're buried in a grave, but Paul, what does Paul say? Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then one day, what does he do? He comes to receive us unto himself that where he is, there we may be also. That is Christian hope. Where does it arise? It arises in seasons of grief and sorrow and struggle and death. But if Jesus has defeated death, then there is no struggle that I'm facing today that he can't handle. And so this text that is, in many ways, it's sad. It's sad to see a man who is 100 and, what is he, 137 years old, burying his wife, grieving over her loss, wishing it had been him instead of her. You can just, you can see it, you can hear it. But he gets up and he squares his shoulders in light of the promises and acts in light of the promises of God. And his grief is, in a sense, mitigated by the hope that he has. And he goes on to live his life for the glory and honor of God. Let's bow our heads to pray this morning. Father.